you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send them to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is God's word. Well, it was growing up in the motherland where I first saw the cruelties of life, of the deep divisions across society. And in my youth, I saw how our people were divided into two groups, the haves and the have-nots. Watching the movie uh, Parasite, which was a dark, shocking, sobering film, I appreciated this film and how it depicted the deep divisions across our people. Some people, like the Kim family, not our family, but the Kim family in the movie, some people live beneath others. They're struggling to keep their heads over water, literally and figuratively. They are down in the dumps, literally and figuratively, and it is in the dumps that they must go for free Wi-Fi. And they can't even eat their peasant meals without the stink bugs getting in their way. And whether it's the stink bugs or the dirty socks hanging over their dining tables, we see in the opening scenes of this movie that life for the Kims stinks. And in this opening scene, you see this, uh, this exterminator come, and they are living beneath uh, the street level. And this exterminator, this exterminator comes walking by, spraying their street. And instead of closing their windows, the dad suggests, no, keep the windows open. We can get free pest control this way. I remember growing up, and every couple weeks or so, uh, it was spray day, and I would be able to look down and see a gulf of smoke and gas just move uh, past our, uh, our, our building in every direction. Growing up in the motherland, I was taught at a far too early age that I and our family were winners. We were winners not only because we lived above the realm of pests and peasants. We were winners precisely because we were American. We represented democracy and capitalism. Those very things that would divide our people not only into the haves and have-nots, but divide our people and our land into the north and the south. Last year in our ministry, we studied the parables. Uh, we looked at a different parable each week, and parables are stories. They are stories or similitudes that illustrate some truth about reality. 
It takes what we can see to show what we cannot see. And I'm struck by the way movies like Parasite or, or Hunger Games or popular recent, uh, not, not that recent, K-drama, um, Squid Games. These offer a modern day parable of something so absurd, it can't possibly be true, but may actually be closer to reality than we might think. For instance, is it really that absurd to imagine grown men and women playing children's games, risking their lives for a slim chance at wealth, especially if your life stinks? And all this for the entertainment of the elites. Parables are believable and unbelievable at the same time. They are powerful because they show something true about ourselves that we may not want to believe. Our passage this morning is a parable. This parable, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, depicts the juxtaposition of wealth and poverty, the fragmentation of humanity and the deep divisions and chasms that exist across socioeconomic classes, the callousness of the hearts of the proud. This parable takes a sober look at the irony of being the haves and attributing that to the blessing of God and of how natural it is, how easy it is to look down at the have-nots and attribute their misery to their own failures and their deserved curse and judgment of God. Now, the rich man here starts off as a winner and ends up in Hades. Uh, the English word for Hades is, is hell. Parabolically, the reversal of fortunes can indicate more than the sudden retraction of good fortunes. It can indicate that beneath the floor of the mansions of the rich, there may be something the haves cannot see about their own homes, about their own lives. This man could not have imagined, he could not have imagined that his good life would amount to anything less and perpetual luxury and comfort. In his eyes, there was nothing wrong. There was nothing wrong with his lifestyle. In fact, it validated his assumptions about the blessings of God. The man is a symbol of the carefree life. He is nominally religious, uh, though he's far less devout than he thinks, with an extravagantly luxurious lifestyle. He is indeed a man of great wealth, of privilege, and if he had any power, he did not steward them all. If you read through, starting from Luke 14, 15, 16, you have these series of uh, events where Jesus shows up. He's feasting with Pharisees. And then you get to Luke 16. There's this parable at the beginning of Luke 16, a parable of the unjust steward. This man is the foil of the unjust steward. The unjust steward used his unrighteous wealth to make friends. The rich man did not, and as a result, if you read verse 9 of this uh, chapter, as a result, because he was unable to make friends, he cannot be received into the eternal dwellings, which is heaven. Now, about that parable of the unjust steward, that parable is about money. And this one is less directly about money but the economic financial concerns cannot be ignored. Jesus tells that parable and this parable 
in the presence of Pharisees, who we read in verse 14, were lovers of money. The rich man here, there seems to be a problem with his extravagant living. He is decked out in custom-fitted, handmade designer shirts and suits of the finest and most luxurious materials. This purple dye was so rare and expensive because you had to, because it was such a difficult process of obtaining the best dye from these certain marine snails. He, he had, he dressed like this, and every day he had a daily menu of caviar, wagyu beef, uh, uh, a cellar full, full of the greatest Grand Cru Bordeaux's, uh, I'm sure a bunch of sh nice champagnes. He is eating like this every single day. Now, what is wrong with that? I mean, if you've got the money, isn't that a perfectly uh, legitimate way to spend your money? The scriptures even says in Ecclesiastes 2, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? I'm sure the rich man had this verse memorized. I want to ask this question. What is so bad about this rich man? What is his great sin that he ends up in Hades? He seeks a carefree, comfortable life. We learn in this parable that there is nothing inherently evil about seeking comfort. In fact, there are two characters in this parable that live comfortably. One does so for a moment in his own home. The other does so in the state of eternity, consummation, and restoration. And that person's name is Lazarus. The rich man had a gate, and on one side he lived in his temporary luxurious comfort and in honor. And on the other side, Lazarus lived in great poverty and misery. Lazarus was covered with sores. He was poor and hungry without a home. And in his hunger, he desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. Now, this isn't like your pet dog under your dining table just hoping for some scraps to fall. In fact, he is not under a table at all. And the food that fell from the rich man's table was not food that just accidentally fell. It is pieces of bread that people would use as a napkin. They would wipe their mouth, toss it in the trash can. And the, the, Lazarus was hoping maybe he can find something edible in the trash it would end up in the trash. And that was Lazarus's best shot at getting something to eat. Lazarus is a parabolic piece of trash. His life stunk. 
the only nourishment he got was from unclean dogs who would lick his sores, rendering him impure. He was a social outcast, and God loved him. That gate, that gate could have and should have been opened. The rich man had the means to provide some alleviation to Lazarus, maybe a decent meal. Uh, some health care would have been nice, but the gate remained closed. Lazarus died. He never got better. He died. The angels carried him away. The rich man also would die. He got an honorable burial, and the scene shifts to the afterlife. Now, the rich man ends up in this place called Hades, where the accommodations are a few standards below, a um, few notches below his standards. And there, he sees Lazarus with Abraham. And he calls out to Abraham to have pity on him and to send Lazarus with the nice, cool, sparkling water to alleviate him. This guy has learned nothing and forgotten nothing. He, even as he is burning in Hades, thinks of himself as a somebody who can boss around a nobody to fetch him drinks. So Abraham carefully explains to him his situations. First, you've had a lifetime of good things while Lazarus had a, has had a lifetime of his own in deep misery. Second, in case you haven't noticed, your situations have completely reversed. Now he's got it good. He is in great comfort, and you not so much. Thirdly, the game is over. You have a probability of zero of winning. There is this great chasm between you and Lazarus. You will never be able to cross over from your current state to the life you used to have, to the great life you once had. You will never cross that chasm, never, ever. The rich man, who has probably never had to take no for an answer, even after three clear points from Father Abraham, still falls back on his elitist instincts. He thinks, maybe if Lazarus can't deliver some cool water over here to me, perhaps he'll deliver a personally delivered note to his five equally rich brothers, warning them of what might happen to them if they continue in their ways. Abraham rebuffs this request and says, look, your brothers have had a whole Bible worth of messages. If they really need a warning, they can read their Bibles. And so finally, uh, the rich man makes one final plea. He gets all spiritual. He appeals to the other side of the world. And he explains that his brothers will listen. They will e repent even. If a message comes from the other side of the grave, that will get their attention, to which Abraham uh, responds, and the parable ends kind of anticlimactically. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. A few thoughts. Um, first, uh, uh, a word about scripture and salvation. This parable doesn't actually say, it doesn't explicitly say why the rich man ends up where he did or why Lazarus ends up where he did. It is a parable. Some truth is being revealed, but it's one parable among the whole counsel of God. Scripture does teach 
that salvation is not by works, but only by grace and through faith alone. Being poor isn't going to help you to get to heaven any more than being rich or middle class. What the man's rich brothers need is not a special sign from the other side. They need the scriptures, namely Moses and the prophets, who are clear about issues of justice and assistance for the poor. They don't need more information, and they surely don't need a sign. The scriptures not only speaks of issues of justice, it speaks ultimately of one who will come from the dead. And a callousness towards God's word is more or less the same as a rejection of God's son who did rise from the dead. He is the only hope the rich man's brothers have. Not good works, only faith in God's son. Second, a word about hell, about this place, Hades. Hades is the underworld. Scripture doesn't offer great details about life after death. Heaven and hell are, are spoken pretty frequently, but rarely in neat, tidy ways. Hades is a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Sheol, which is the abode of the dead. Now, there are different kind of uses of this uh, and understandings of this word Hades. First, it's simply the abode of the dead. Second, it's an intermediate abode for the wicked and the righteous prior to the final judgment. Third, and we get this from uh, the Aramaic word Gehenna, uh, it's a place of punishment for the wicked. The word Gehenna is an Aramaic word. Uh, in Jewish tradition, it is a dump heap southeast of Jerusalem. And in the New Testament, Gehenna, Hades, takes on the view of a consuming fire following the last judgment. Now, in the parable, Hades is not a waiting area prior to final judgment. It's not this intermediate place where wicked and righteous people alike go. It is a place of torment and suffering. And apparently, where apparently, uh, apparently where repentance is not to be found. There is continuity of personal identity. The, man rem the rich man remembers the life he had and is in fact haunted by it. Real physical desire does not disappear in Hades. Hades is not a place for disembodied spirits. It's a place where real bodies that are in need exist and suffer. You're still the same person in Hades as you are here. You don't go there and get sanctified. Only your circumstances have worsened, and considerably so. You have more of a conscience in Hades. However, it's all for naught. The best time to become a better person is now. It's not in Hades. Third, I want to um, return to a question I asked previously. What is so bad about this rich man? What is the great sin he committed that he should end up in such a terrible place? He liked fancy food and expensive clothing. Was that his great sin? 
Yes, he neglected the poor. But would charity and philanthropy have helped his cause? Sometimes I think about helping the poor. And I think about all the things I could do for our family. That's not too far from the rich man. Poverty was a problem in Jesus' day. And it's a great problem today, even though we live in the most technologically and medically advanced time in human history. It's a problem because we have a way of trampling on top of one another through exploitation and greed. We have a way of narrowing our tribe from tightening our definition of who my neighbor is. Consider the parable of the Good Samaritan in the same gospel, the Gospel of Luke. That answers the question, who is my neighbor? We have a way of doubling down on the nuclear family, often to the neglect of singles, widows, immigrants, refugees, the poor, and the disenfranchised. This guy, this rich man, did not lack mercy. He had mercy. It was only offered to his five brothers. Lazarus is not only his brother. Not, Lazarus is not only his neighbor. He is actually his brother. Because if the man so claims Abram as his father, who is Lazarus dining with in heaven? You cannot claim Abram as, as your father without claiming Lazarus as your brother. And you cannot claim Jesus as your brother without claiming Lazarus as your brother. This guy, Lazarus, soars all over his body, rummaging the dumpster for, for food. This social outcast scum of society is your brother. There's a murder in the beginning of scriptures. One brother kills another. After the murder, God finds the guy and asks, where is your brother? To which he responds, am I my brother's keeper? Well, if you keep reading hundreds of pages later and you still haven't gotten the answer, thousand pages later, you come to Luke chapter 16 here is the answer. The answer is yes. Lazarus is your neighbor. He is also your brother. What this parable rebukes is a kind of lifestyle that does not see poverty and suffering. It rebukes the idea that possessions are for one's own use and that they are ours without responsibility or concern to God and other people. The more we think like that, the easier it is to attribute the predicament of the poor to their own laziness or poor decisions they've made. And if that's the case, why should we help them? The man's great sin was that he thought he was better than the poor. And in Jesus's economy, he was not. The way he looks at the poor, even from hell, is a sure sign of his sense of entitlement and self-importance. Paul says in Christ, there's no group that's greater than or lesser than. When Paul says in Christ, there's no Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, he doesn't, he's not saying gender doesn't matter. What he's saying is that there's no privilege. Jews don't get to have privilege over Gentiles and vice versa. Men don't get to have privilege over women and vice versa. And the slave-master dynamic of superiority, inferiority, is suspended, dismantled in Christ. The church has to be a place 
radically countercultural to the systems and structures that, that deem certain groups greater than or lesser than in society. There is something obnoxious about shamelessly pursuing and even attaining a luxurious lifestyle while at the same time claiming you are a Christian, or in this man's case, a descendant of Abraham. And when you begin to believe the folly that elitism and Christianity go quite well together, at that point you're heading down a dangerous path not only of self-deceit, which is, which is uh, prominent in the rich man's heart, uh, a dangerous path not only of self-deceit, but of losing the core character of Christian faith, salvation by God's grace alone. This is a parable told to the privileged and religious class, the Pharisees, together with followers of Jesus, the disciples. And when followers of Jesus have seen themselves as winners, deserving success and good fortunes over the losers of society and having operated out of an elite, upper-class, socially or politically privileged Christianity, it's, dif it's difficult to be salt and light in the culture we live in. It's hard to be a witness of a crucified Savior, risen and ascended, when you're accustomed to always getting your agenda and rarely having to go out of your way to help the less fortunate. When a group has for so long used its privilege and power for self-protection and self-aggrandizement, and when said group loses their seat of influence, privilege, and power in such a short time, just a few decades, it's a reminder that in life, sometimes winners can go on losing streaks and fortunes can be flipped at eternity. Now, I am grateful. Um, as a, I am grateful for the church in America who brought the Christian faith to my mother country 100 plus years ago, where my great-grandfather was one of the first indigenous, first-generation Presbyterian ministers in that country. And so I'm grateful for the church in America, uh, especially for their uh, heritage and legacy in missions. But I believe we are in a, I believe we are in a time of contradiction and conflict, a time of decline and renewal. The church in America is both economically strong and ethically disgraced and remains relationally segregated. We are coming out of a time of exorbitant levels of power and privilege and we find ourselves now on the margins called to an exilic presence in a post-Christian society, and if we are to be faithful, we need not only the words of Jesus, but that of Moses. Love and duty to God and fellow man, and that of the prophets. Justice and peace to all, but especially the oppressed, marginalized, and the poor. Now, collective issues aside, the parable is a warning through the rich man to each of us, personally and individually. And heeding the warning, perhaps we may seek some change in our own lives. Maybe it is to live more simply. Maybe it is to practice hospitality or to forsake our 
dreams or daydreams or wishes of getting rich. And instead, invest in eternity. Invest in our eternal lives, which you cannot buy. Or to love the poor and serve mercy. Or to be more vulnerable about ourselves and our needs. Um, recognize that, um, you know, our lives, even when things seem to be going well, there might be some things we need to be more sober about. Um, maybe it is to keep on learning what it is to be dependent on God, on his resources, on others, be interdependent with others, which is inherent to being human beings. What are some ways we might respond to this parable? It absolutely is a warning to all of us. But the parable is not only a warning. It is a promise of hope to anybody, to any of us who can identify with Lazarus. Lazarus is given something no other character in all of Jesus' parables is given. He gets something nobody else got. He got a name. His name means God has helped. Is God a helper to those who can help themselves? Or is our God the helper of the helpless? What the Gospels, especially Luke, show over and over again is that not only does God appear to have a special preferential care for the poor, but also in the words of Flannery O'Connor, we are all the poor. This is the gospel, that we were poor and sick and helpless. We were at the gate, begging for any, anything, for a crumb to fall. And the king did what the rich man wouldn't do. He opened the gate for us. And by opening the gate, he did the unthinkable. He crossed over from his life of eternal comfort to our life of pain and death. And we crossed over that chasm once and for all to a life of honor, comfort, and peace. Let us pray. Our great uh, Father, we pray that we would hear these words from your son and find our hope in him. We pray, O oh Father, that we would turn to you in repentance for there are many things that we might be hiding about ourselves We need you and your mercy and your mercy alone. And we thank you for Jesus who offers that to us. And we pray, Lord, as we partake of this, uh, the Lord's Supper, um, you would sanctify us by his blood. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.